Hello and welcome to Demo Tapes, a music podcast which hits rewind on the careers of some of the world's biggest bands to reminisce about their breakout moments. I'm Rick Martin and this, my companion on this trip down memory lane, is Sarah Kemp. I think last time you called me your co-pilot, didn't you? I've been having a look into this, Rick, and a co-pilot is actually a first officer, which is below the captain, which means I'm second in command. So I think I've been having a think about this. You were wrong, but I think I'm more like your Lennon to McCartney or the other way around. So it sounds like you've stepped up from being the the Robin to my Batman, so now now Lennon McCartney. Yeah, I had a look into that as well. I think Robin was a bit below Batman. So anyway, we're aiming aiming quite high. Equality, we're all about equality, guys. Anyway, enough of that. Um, so let's explain a bit about who we are. We've got Rick Martin. He is an ex-enemy journalist. Um, I call him the Rain Man of Music. He is a meticulous fact hunter. And to be honest, what I really think about Rick is that he is just in it for the music. Not sure quite how to take that, Sarah, how to, how to, to react to that. But yeah, this podcast is about music. Um, so this is Sarah Kemp. Uh, she's a blogger, a blagger. In the last podcast, we kind of compared her to... Um, Penny Lane in, in Almost Famous and comparing me to the journalist in that and me being stuck at the stage door while she went in with the band. But basically, I've called you a groupie there, so I don't know if that's No, that's definitely, that's definitely, well, it's, yeah, I, I, yeah, it is. But anyway, we'll gloss over that fact. You could be bled to think that women hanging out with bands make, makes them a groupie, but actually you're wrong, unfortunately. Uh, I also was in it for love of the music, but, you know, we'll talk about that another time. But yeah, we'll leave this for the Guilty Feminist podcast anyway. <laughs> but thanks for hitting the download button on this our uh, second episode uh which i only assume is a sign that you were at least in some way intrigued uh by our first episode side a of our uh our kind of journey back to the heart of of arctic monkeys um or perhaps you stumbled upon us uh for the first time in which case uh, welcome um and we'll give you a little bit of a recap on on this podcast why we're here what are we doing yeah, and we talked about in the last episode that for us, music is kind of about the fans and there's nothing more exciting than the emergence of a new band. I can pinpoint the gig that changed my life, as I'm sure a lot of you listeners can as well. And it's something we'll go into in a bit more detail in further further episodes. But, you know, it's something so exciting talking about kind of being there at the, at the very beginning of an artist and their journey. Um, and, and something for me, it's, it's not all about the music. It's about the people you meet along the way and the experiences you have. And really the nostalgia for the excitement there's something we're looking to capture in all of these podcasts. It's shameless nostalgia, I think. Is what shameless we're nostalgia. We're, we are shameless yeah. <laughs> about the fact that we're nostalgic about about a time when we were a, a little bit younger and, and maybe a little little wiser or less wise. Less wise, less definitely wise, less yeah. wise. A bit more silly, but anyway. So this week's episode uh, is the side B to the story of the emergence of Arctic Monkeys. Uh, we thought there was far too much to kind of cram into to one podcast last week, so we've hit rewind again and return for more. Um, as promised, later on there'll be more from my archive interview with Alex Turner and Matt Helders. Um, again, that was recorded when the Arctic Monkeys were still unsigned and the pair of them were kind of on the cusp of their 20s, late teens, early 20s in, in 2005. Um, and this week they'll talk us through the development of some of their early demos, which went on to become some of their biggest hits. Uh, and a little bit of a flavour of, of, of what impending fame might feel like for them. They were just on the cusp of really breaking through. So it was interesting to, to look back now and hear um, exactly how they felt about their kind of yeah impending superstardom. Um, and if you heard last time, we, we played snippets of the Arctic Monkeys interview that Rick did, which was the first ever interview for NME. Um, and you'll hear kind of why a few stories, including why Rick was blacklisted from ever interviewing them again, um, oh, which, is, which, yeah, <laughs> which is my favourite story um, of Rick Martin. So if you didn't hear, you can listen back. It's episode number one. But anyway, yeah, to kick off this week... Um, I guess the first place and the most logical place to start would be asking you about what happened after your interview with them. 
Okay, yes, yeah, so I guess I left their, their rehearsal space until Uncle Rodney's, as they called it. <laughs> um, tail between legs, I guess. Lesson learned about, you know, buying batteries for your dictaphone before what a you, go and, you go and do an interview. <laughs> Schoolboy. And then obviously I left and, and went to write the uh, feature up, which um, that's when the penny drops a little bit, I think, that you've done an interview, but then you've actually got to go and write it up. And rem- to remind the listeners, I was a 19-year-old kid at the time doing a journalism degree. I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, <laughs> so it was kind of a baptism of fire to, to write your first feature in, in that way, you know. Um, so I went away, submitted the feature, um, and a few weeks later it appeared um, in The Enemy. I can still remember barely sleeping the night before it, it hit the shelves. Um, by this point, I had written for The Enemy for a good kind of three or four years, kind of small reviews and live reviews and album reviews, but this is the first time I'd had a proper spread in, in the magazine, and, and I don't mind admitting, yeah, it was quite an exciting time just to go and yeah, pick it up in the newsletter, especially because I grew up, and this, this podcast isn't about The Enemy, but I, I grew up The Enemy from being 13, and it's kind of all I ever wanted to do from being sort of 12, 13, and the, I can still remember the first enemy I ever picked up, where I was, what was in it, this is the Rain Man stuff coming, <laughs> coming out again, and, and it always been a massive ambition to have a feature running the enemy. But so there was your good. interview, bright shining light. So what, what, yeah, what, what was, um, were you happy with it? Like, you know, once you actually did pick it up on the shelf, I bet you probably read it there and then in the, in the newsagents. Yeah, probably about before right. Before you bought it. <laughs> um, I know, because that happened to me as well when I got my first thing published, but we'll talk about that another time. Um, but were you happy with it? So I suppose the answer is, is yes and no. Um, it's fair to say that the editor of the piece, a Chrissy enemy, had got them back on the phone for more quotes. She'd used some of my interview quotes. She'd used some of her own. It was a little bit of a mm, Frankenstein's okay. monster of, of definitely... 90% of my writing but extra things that she'd added in I think so that's fair enough because they were a difficult interview and sometimes for these pieces you do want to get kind of extra quotes and I think it's it's amusing to think that I probably wasn't 100% happy with what what came out but who cares my name was on it as everyone would assume that I'd I'd written the whole thing the band apparently weren't particularly happy with it either particularly uh, Matt Helders there was a quote in it about the Kaiser Chiefs um, around and actually this this may come in the footage we're going to play later so this is a bit of a tease and a bit of a spoiler that um they didn't feel part of the scene in in yorkshire or they certainly didn't feel an affinity with the other bands in the scene and i kind of dug a little bit deeper into that and said well you know what is it you don't like and matt helders has kind of quit well i don't like ricky wilson he's he's annoying Ooh. so apparently they weren't happy that ran in the, the piece maybe they were learning a lesson there if you, if yeah. you, tell, a journalist, if you tell a journalist something they're going to print it especially if it's a bit controversial I mean, saying Ricky Wilson's annoying isn't exactly a controversial thing. No, but they, if they, they don't want to be, you know, they don't want to tire with that brush, do they? You never know. The, the industry is a very small place. So I guess, yeah, they, they probably learned So you didn't really have much luck with, the, with them, really. You know, you'd, had, you'd had a few bad, bad run-ins with them, and then they printed something that they weren't happy with. So I'm not surprised you didn't interview them again. But you, you, well, you didn't interview them again. So can you go into a bit more detail about why? Um, so, as mentioned in the previous podcast, I was basically blacklisted, in fact, for the next two or three gigs. Uh, I couldn't even um, get on the guest list, which was, I guess, guess, kind of a strange time when you were there early on and you were kind of welcomed in the circle to the point that you would go to some of the early gigs and then and then you kind of shunted back on the outside. Equally, that is uh, kind of 101 of music journalism. That's exactly how it works. And you don't kind of sit there feeling sorry for yourself. In fact what came you know, behind them was kind of an explosion in, in the Sheffield scene, which we'll kind of go on to a, a little bit later on in this podcast. But, you know, the way it works, you get shunted out of one band circle, you move into another. And in fact, um, the circles around those bands in Sheffield were kind of concentric in the sense that they overlap with each other. You probably did see them around, right? Like, wh- where did you see them around after that? And, and this, this is the thing to say, it wasn't like it was uh, there's was any animosity there. And yes, you would see them out quite regularly. I remember being in the lead mill, 
one night and kind of passing them on on the dance floor and you know they would be at gigs and they would be at uh, did they say nights. hi? Were they, you know, were they still, or was it a bit like, you know, hands, sh- hands over face, walk, walk past? Don't, it's a bit don't. like when you see a work colleague that you don't, that you're not, an, you're not an enemy of, but you don't particularly get on with that well, and you know, you'll, you'll pass, um, <laughs> you'll kind of the corridor of, and kind of like do a little wry smile, and then, and then saunter past. It's like in Human Traffic. I don't know if you've seen Human Traffic. Yes, There's uh-huh. a point where uh, John Sims' character sees. Um, Andrew Lincoln's character at the bar, and then they kind of do a peep show style, um, kind of listen what what they're actually thinking when they see each other, which is you know we've run into oh God, each oh other, God. we've got to have an awkward conversation. Neither was want to Levels be here. Panicking. So so that, that I guess I guess that that's how I would. Um, you know, right. And we and we did used to run into in, in, you know we did run, used to run into each other, and it was never there's never any animosity. All right, there, that's good. That's good. So yeah, I guess we knew what happened next for you. Um, not not always that great actually but what happened next for the band because this was the year to, where are we now 2005 2005 this is the year that they really start to take off isn't it yeah it is so so around the same time the feature came out their debut ep five minutes with arctic monkeys was released um it had fake tales of san francisco and from the ritz to the rubble both tracks which eventually went on to be on their debut album brilliant um, brilliant tracks. and actually the production on these tracks was better than that it was on the debut album i think these are the better uh, versions. Well, yeah, because their music was very kind of jittery, jerky, raw. indie, raw. It was and, raw, that's and, what it was. And it, uh, having the kind of high polished slip production didn't always work. It doesn't always work for bands like that. I mean, I've I've definitely come round to the style of production on the debut album recently, but we can kind of come on to that later. But I think on this EP, it really kind of captured the kind of energy and, and, and excitement um, around them. What they did do, and I mentioned this on the last podcast, they made this uh, EP deliberately unchartable, so it came out on their, their own label, Bang Bang, but they didn't put a barcode on it, mm. so that no matter how many copies they sold, it wouldn't be eligible for the charts. And it's actually, it's actually quite a rare rare record now. If you have it and you can stick it on eBay, you might you might make a, a lot of money, make a few quid, a yeah. And then I, I guess they did a lot of touring, um, and then we we kind of I want to talk about Leeds Festival, so. We were both there. We've only just found this. Yeah, this we out. only recently We've realized only really this. Yeah. Found this out. So basically, what happened for me is I, I mentioned on the last podcast that I never went to see them because I didn't like the name, and my friends had had been to see them countless times and kept telling me to go. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to Leeds Festival. I'll I'll, I'll go along and I'll see them. I'll go and see what all the fuss is about. Finally. So off I, I'm, I'm with a mate, um, and we're walking up to the the Carling tent, and we're having a bit of an argument. She's telling me that <laughs> she's she's saying to me, "Sarah, you only fancy boys who are wearing Converse and skinny jeans." <laughs> and I'm laughing, going, "Well, you're probably right, but that means that they're probably into the same kind of music that hmm. I'm into." Basically, this girl, love it a bit. She was one of my best friends from school, John Quill. Um, a little bit of a hippie, so kind of wasn't really into anything like that at all. And I was kind of dragging her off to the Carling tent. And we got there and I was absolutely gutted because it was overflowing and we couldn't get in. We couldn't even we couldn't even see inside the tent because there were so many people around it. Um, and they started playing and basically I kind of spent the, the whole gig outside just listening to, you know, it, the sound wasn't great, obviously, because I wasn't in the tent. And just seeing people go absolutely mental, climbing up the rafters and just wishing again, you know, idiot Sarah hadn't got there early enough but you is a different story for you you kind of got there really early hadn't you and uh, I made sure I was I was in position yeah because so you I think knew but we, you, know, we, we you knew, absolutely knew I think we knew that this 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 was going to be a bit of a moment for them I think in fact from the stage they even say it was was a bit of a moment you know you have to remember Leeds uh, and they had a similar reaction in Reading but you know Leeds is is on their home patch they're yeah, from yeah, High yeah. Green um, you know they're from Sheffield but actually they're from the part of Sheffield that's kind of on the way to Leeds mm. so I guess 
you know, they'll have had a lot of their kind of friends and family and, and mates. And the word really had started to get out around the north at that point. You know, around that time, I saw them play in Manchester. I saw them play in Wigan. Um, and they were getting similar reactions kind of wherever they went. So that I think that, that Leeds Festival gig, or that let's call it the, the Reading and Leeds weekend where they played the two sets, was a point I think they went from being a really talked about kind of um, new band. They weren't unsigned at this point. They had signed with Domino Records to kind of being a national concern. I remember they got their first picture on the cover of The Enemy. They weren't they weren't the main artist on the cover, but they got kind of a, uh, a headline and a, and a picture of Alex in the corner of the, of, of the magazine. I was actually working for Enemy at that festival that weekend. And I was arguing with the editor saying, you've got to put Arctic Monkeys on the cover. You've got to, that's got to be the it's lead got image. got to be the lead image. And it wasn't. And I bet if they could go back, they probably, they probably would. Should they probably should have done. Because it was, that, that was a defining moment of, of one of the biggest band's career, probably. So I guess for me, what, what songs stood out for you when, when, when you, you went to see? You said you couldn't, you couldn't see them, but from what you heard, what, what I bet you look out? good on the dance floor. I mean, it, that that song. I mean, we we can, we're going to talk about that. What in in October it got released and went straight to number one, and that's kind of when it all the mania really started. Like the mainstream mania for that band really really started when that song was released. Everything about that song, the lyrics, the energy, Alex Turner's voice, you know, the guitar, you know, every, the, the the craziness of that song. And the fact that at the time, going to an indie disco was was the thing to do, you know, as as somebody who was, I don't know how old I was, kind of under 20 years old, that is the thing you'd do. You'd get, your, you'd get your glad rags on, you'd go to an indie disco, and you'd spend the whole night dancing, singing along with other people, making new friends, for, li- literally making new friends for life. And that song, I Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor, just kind of epitomised and ca- encapsulated everything that, that was good at that time to me. See, I, I've had a bit of a love-hate relationship with this song in the sense that when it came out, I didn't like it. I actually thought, really? you know, having heard oh all God. their demos, knowing the tracks they had, you know, I thought Fate Tales of San Francisco, just in terms of um, the kind of sarcasm in that, the kind of biting yep, yep, wit, yep. Um, I think the guitars in that, it all... To me, to me, that that was a more complete um, kind of song, if you know what I mean. Um, and some of their other demos, even things like from the Ritz, the Rubble, I think was better than I bet you look good on the dance floor. But kind of recently, because I did see the Arctic's at the O2 a few weeks ago, and they did play I bet you look good on the dance floor. And I've kind of maybe in my older age, I'm coming round to why it's why it's actually a better song than I gave it credit for. So I was, I was listening to this a couple of days ago and really analysing. And you think about what's clever about the intro to that song as a very simple kind of chord structure in terms of the main riff. But they open with a solo. Mm. So you think about that, that's quite a, yeah, a confident yeah. thing to do, to open with a track with with, with a solo. Um, and, you know, the kind of lyrical references, the thing about your name isn't Rio, but I don't care for sand, <laughs> you know. Um, the, st- the reference to 1984, which was obviously the George Orwell reference, but the fact that his mate, John McClure, late of Reverend the Makers, was in a band yeah. called 1984, and obviously uh, Alex and John have been in a band. Yeah. So, um, but very I've, smart. I've come... and I think, but you, you, this, this is, goes on to my point about you being in it for the music. So you're, you're coming at it. We're coming at it from slightly different points here. I think my memory of it is, is having being in a crowd of people who are all going absolutely mental, and actually being in that, you know, that that energy, that that environment, which to me was just something quite magical whereas you're coming at it from a different point of view which is you know what's the music all about which I don't disagree with at all but that means we're probably both going to have quite slightly different views on things uh, um, Mm. of of what was good and what was bad anyway so so that kind of happened and then in January um, their debut album gets released um, and it becomes the fastest selling debut album of all time I mean what? I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? What? Um, <laughs> and, and again, it was one of those things you saw coming, but I don't think anyone saw coming quite how big 
not like it was, that. It was going to be. Not you know, like and then, that. then you've got Gordon Brown saying that you know, you've got the Prime Minister Gordon Brown at the time referencing that he wakes up. The Arctic Monkeys get him up in the morning. I mean, I think, I think you know, you've crossed over to a kind of an, an oasis kind of level of territory when you've got politicians um, talk, talking about you. Yeah, 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 definitely. So, so when uh, whatever people say, um, that's what I'm not, uh, came out, what, what did you think of it? You, know, you, you got a copy of it, I assume. Yeah, you yeah. You put it on. What, what, what did you well, think? Well, actually, I didn't have a copy. My stepdad brought a copy. So to, to me, that says a lot. When my stepdad, um, my stepdad Mark, uh, he, he, was a bit, he, he was a bit younger than my mum. So he was kind of still in his phase of kind of music loving at that point of his life as well. And we used to kind of, we used to, we bonded over that, I guess. He loved the Arctic Monkeys. Um, he bought it. As I said before, my friends at the time, um, I kind of excitedly looked at the cover um, and to see their, their names shining in bright lights as as kind of four or five people who had really supported them along along their journey um, at the beginning. But it was just a great album. It, uh, it was just just full of excitement to me. And it, it it made me it made me sad that I hadn't gone and seen them when I should have gone and seen them. And to that to this day, I just I still do regret that. But yeah, but what, what about you? And in terms of the music, I guess, like you coming at it from a music angle, what did you think of it? Well, I think before that, from the, from a Rain Man fact point of view, do you know who the cover star of the album is? Do you know who that is? Oh, we talked about this the other day. So that's Chris McClure, who is the brother of John McClure. Yeah, Reverend, the, the, Reverend and the Makers. You know, and in terms of musically, again, um, I'm going to sound quite contrary here in that um, I preferred the demos. That almost got a bit of a punt, you know, a catchphrase for me at the time. Um, I thought that they'd gone from quite a spiky, quite a raw sound on their their, their, their demos and the early, that, you know, the five minutes of the Arctic Monkeys EP. So something that sounded quite sort of sanitised and 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 didn't maybe didn't capture the kind of energy of, of kind of the live sound. Although I've gone back to it again recently, and listened to it again, and I think there's maybe something more subtle going on with that production. And I think actually um, it does work. But it almost reminds me a little bit in reverse of the Smiths. So when the Smiths debut album came out, their self-titled album. A lot of Smiths fans prefer Hatful of Hollow, which was not a fully realised studio album. It's a lot of like the live sessions they did for John Peel. So stuff like This Charming Man, if you hear This Charming Man in indie disco now, it tends to be the one on um, Hatful of Hollow rather than the debut album because the production wasn't right mm. on the debut album. So I almost had that in mind when I, I listened to it. I think that's about right though with lots of bands. I know like when... This is for a whole new episode, but um, Franz Ferdinand, which was one of the bands that really kind of got me and kickstarted me into kind of my music loving career, I guess, is their demos were much better. And I, I still go back and own, not only, but if I'm going back to listen to Franz Ferdinand, I'll go and listen to their demos because to me that captured kind of the raw sense of what that band meant. And I think it was, it's probably the same for Arctic Monkeys. And I think, yeah, in terms of the, the tracks on it, I really enjoyed. I think the one I always come back to is is Riot Van. I think the words mm. on that are really clever. Obviously, it's a story about police turning up and, and arresting kids and saying, you know, why aren't you catching uh, proper crooks? Stuff like Red Light Indicates Doors Are Secure, which is obviously is about being in a taxi and, and going home. And obviously, it, it captured a period in, in their lives. You know, I think Alex, in kind of his recent interviews, said he's a little bit embarrassed when he goes back and listens to some of those <laughs> some of those tracks. But I, I, I don't think he should. You know, it, ca- it captured a time when you're kind of 19 and 20, you know, you, you, your life really just revolves around going out and and, and drinking and, and you know definitely and another thing I want to get onto is around around that is there was a scene in Sheffield right so they kind of kick-started something that became really popular with people who liked the Arctic Monkeys and, and other people but none of the bands really got as big as the Arctic Monkeys um, I personally thought 
a lot of the bands weren't that great. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, and one in particular. <laughs> we, can, we can go into this now. I'm ready we for this. We can go into this, yeah. Well, so my friends, as I said, the, the guys that were um, kind of really big fans of Arctic Monkeys, they were just massive fans of the Sheffield scene in particular. And they also always used to go off and see, Milbone was kind of one of the biggest ones, Little Man Tate, Bromer's Jacket, and Reverend and the Makers. Actually, I actually quite liked Reverend and the Makers. And they, I think they probably crossed the line into the kind of bigger music space and like the more commercial space than any of the others um actually it's, it's funny i was talking to a friend one of the guys who was on the album the, the thank you on the album being a little laugh because um he lives in sheffield milburn also still live there and he said that he sees them all the time in his spin classes which i find absolutely hilarious because he's gone from you know seeing them in grungy dis- indie discos 10 years ago to now seeing them in spin classes like how times change when you get older hey <laughs> it's probably best i don't run into milburn yeah there's a bit of a, a bit of a story oh, okay there. go on so i mean i think you know you're right there was definitely a sheffield scene that kicked off behind the arctic monkeys what was kind of amusing to me was that all these bands that subsequently got signed didn't like to admit the fact that it was because of arctic monkeys that it happened so milburn are a classic example you know they um they actually formed before Arctic Monkeys. They Arctic Monkeys famously supported them um, on the on the kind of their way up. And Milburn got Happens sick of got sick of the questions about being Arctic Monkeys mates. <laughs> but the simple fact was, they weren't as good, you know. And their, they their sound they, they sounded like the Arctic Crap. Monkeys, but just not as as good a version. Um, something that I did write in a review once for the Enemy, and then ran into the drummer <laughs> in the toilets in a Sheffield club, and let's just say uh, we had words. Um, and there were, yeah, that's probably as, as far but, as I'm legally allowed to but go. What, would, that what we, did you say? Just generally taking the piss out of them in reviews, to be honest. I think I did some of their early reviews and interviewed them, but then when their debut album came out afterwards, it was a complete flop, to be honest. It just wasn't very good. Um, whereas the Arctic Monkeys had delivered on promise, they, they'd kind of spectacularly um, dropped the ball. And inf- what's, he meant, what's he meant to expect? You know, you know if, if it's not great, you've got to be able to take a bit of criticism but the, the difference of being a music journalist and that I was going to kind of come onto this uh, back in those days and certainly you know I don't think these days you have music journalists who cover exclusively city scenes even when I was on staff on the enemy a few years later it was hard to find people who you could rely on in one city mm. who were kind of at the heart of a scene it's one thing to write a review of a band that you're never going to meet you get you two's new album you review it you say it's rubbish you're never going to run into Bono <laughs> in the pub or you know uh, let's hope not anyway I'd hate to run into Bono whereas in the if pub. you if you review bands that from the city that you're living in and you know that you you see around uh, you may have to front up around some of the things that you've written and that that is certainly um, what happened there I think it's interesting to think about some of the other bands that, that came through at the time as well so there was as you say Little Man Tate and I, again I kind of had a um, I'm not even going to call it a love-hate relationship. There were things I absolutely loved about that band. There were things that, I, I mean, right, the, the songs were terrible. We all know the songs were awful. The songs were Arctic Monkeys rip-offs. I can't even remember any of them. Like, if you'd asked me to recall anything, I just wouldn't be able to. House all party, I can recall is the fact that I thought they were crap. House Party <laughs> of Boonies is one. I mean, they, they were just really kind of um, substandard, you know, social commentaries, usually about chatting girls up, but slightly cruder than Arctic Monkeys, mm. slightly less clever. Alex writes about women in a lot of his songs, but he does it in such kind a way of that far you probably more, wouldn't even know. Far but. more subtle, kind of poetic sort of ways. All the other Sheffield bands hated them, and they kind of reveled in it. They kind of reveled in right. the fact that they they openly, I'm sure, well, I wouldn't say they openly said in interviews, but they were they were pretty brazen about the fact that they ripped off Arctic Monkeys. They got a record deal. They were actually the second most popular band in Sheffield. They used to pack out the boardwalk. They used to pack out kind of other venues in in Yorkshire. And you know, they briefly 
were probably the second biggest band in Sheffield, which annoyed people like Milburn because <laughs> because they weren't part of that little kind of clique and scene. And actually, I remember um, they were also the nicest guys in that scene. That's the other thing I'll say. I remember going. Um, there's kind of a common thread here of me getting picked up by bands in the tour bus to go to gigs that I'm not reviewing. But I did that with Little Man Tate for a gig. I think it was in York. I can't. I can't fully remember where it was. And they were just decent guys. There was mm. none of the kind of spikiness that you got with the Arctics. You know, they were. Um, I think they were a little bit older as well. Probably a little bit older and a little bit wiser. Um, and yeah, just just a just a good laugh. And, and Reverend and the Makers, I don't, I, d- I don't particularly lump those guys in with with the rest of them because their sound was so different. So so he's, I mean, I know he's friends with them and they are kind of grown up together and they're in bands and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of sound, I don't think they were. Yeah, that and I, well, you say that. I mean, John John McClure did co-write some of the songs on Arctic Monkeys' second ah, album. Okay. So um, uh, Old Yellow Bricks was one that was co-written with with John McClure. He's he, he was the glue that held that scene together. I remember writing that at the time. You know, he was in a band with Alan and Matt before they were in Arctic Monkeys. He lived with Alex, who uh, is sort of they shared a flat mm-hmm. uh, for a while. And I probably, at the time, knew John McClure pretty well. I remember once he turned up to my student flat um, and just played a gig in my living room. Not mm-hmm. not like some corporate arranged thing, you know, where like, yeah, 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 just where, to, you know, where O2 gets someone to come was and quite play. A, and that was quite a big thing at the time, wasn't it? Like the amount of times I was in a, that's this, a student house and like a band would just turn up and just start playing and... Uh, that was that was a bit of a thing. Like um, the others used to do that quite a lot. They used to go and play, play little gorilla gigs on tubes and things yeah, like that. Yeah, I remember that. Remember it was that. just a big. It was a, just a massive part of the time, and it was it was really exciting. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. When I say gigs, he would just turn up with a guitar. Exactly. And put, yeah. And put, and yeah. Play, yeah. And play for a bit. But um, no, he, he he's he's you know I, I, I wouldn't call him a friend, but he's someone that I've known for kind of um, quite a number of years, and he's another one of those people that would say I, I, we're going to play in Manchester tomorrow, do you want to come on and the tour And they're still bus? going now, aren't they? Still going strong. You saw them a couple of weeks ago, didn't you? saw them in Margate uh, at that Libertines Wheels and Fins yeah. um, Wheels and Fins Festival, and they're interesting because they, their, their sound has kind of evolved over the, over their albums, you know, they started off doing Heavyweight Champion of the World, mm-hmm. and he said he loved me, and quite bubblegum kind of indie pop, and I think um, they their, their sound has evolved in some quite kind of um, you know the last album was quite dark in places quite okay. quite it, retro. Worth, to, worth, definitely a worth a listen if you have. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely give it a listen. I'd actually quite like it. to see them live. It's a shame I couldn't go to that festival, but it was just in the arse end of nowhere, so I couldn't actually get back to London for work on the Monday. But anyway, so I think there's probably another couple of bands I'd, I'd want to give a bit, a bit of a name check to here if we're going to talk about the Sheffield scene. So there was. Um, Bromhead's Jacket, mm-hmm. who um, were kind of, I think, vaguely mates with the Arctic Monkeys. But what made them interesting was they weren't actually from Sheffield. Or certainly the singer Tim Hampton wasn't from Sheffield. He's actually from Hampshire. Yes, so, they muscled their way into a scene, did they? How? So guitar-wise, they sounded quite of that time, mm. you know, quite sort of angular, sort of Arctic Monkeys style, kind of indie indie punk. But um, the the singer, you know, spoke in a, in a in a very kind of southern sort of accent, and the the parallel there, I think, with them and Arctic Monkeys was that social commentary. But they they were a lot more a lot more punk, I guess, a lot more DIY. They didn't seem to want to sign a big record deal, which is all the funnier now that. Um, they're on a McDonald's advert, so they must have completely sold out. No, a, I didn't even know that. There's a McDonald's advert out what, at the moment. Now? What if it's called What If Maybe is the song. And I that's don't on, particularly that's on a McDonald's watch advert. that much TV, but I'll look out for and it. If, I'll go YouTube you, it. Yeah, YouTube next, it. Next time you flip the TV on, you see a McDonald's advert. That's that's Bromhead's <laughs> jacket. Bromhead's jacket. And then, and then so they're of, still going now as well? So uh, a lot of these bands... They split, is, year, they split so, years so ago. So this is an old song that they've just McDonald's have just decided to have funny. I can't understand how McDonald's have cottoned onto this, unless... I guess 
in the advert they're talking about I always do this when I think well how did a song get yeah, an advert yeah, like, what I think they're, they're talking about choosing your burger or choosing your wrap or something <laughs> and, the, and they probably did a keyword search on choosing and oh, what ifs hilarious. and what ifs and maybe and then maybe that's why that Maybe that's why the machine, the algorithm, um, oh, pulled that I was out. Gonna, I was going to make another point here: is that do you think that 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 these bands are making a resurgence? Then, if we, if you've got people, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're completely right, and it's the sense that they're just talking about burgers. But it might have been that the the music might be making a bit of a resurgence. If that's the case, uh, then that would be quite cool, wouldn't it? I, so I, I, don't, I don't think I don't think it is. I don't think it is. So, but I think if you think about Milburn, they they reformed a couple of years ago. I think it was and did a, a reformate. You know they did some live dates. Um, Tom Rowley from Milburn is in Arctic Monkeys backing band now. So if you see them live and you spot someone who isn't in the core four, that's that's him. Mm. Uh, Reverend the Makers are still going strong, still putting out um, good music, good albums. They're, they're a band that maybe we'll even get on their own uh, demo tapes, podcast at some yeah, point in the future. So. so so listen out for that. Little Man Tate, no one knows where they've gone. Tell you what was interesting about <laughs> Little care. Man. Well, there was a point when I was on the staff at NME where we thought... Um, we thought we'd found out what happened next with them. This is quite—I I found this quite funny at the time. Do you remember when the BNP list was um, was leaked? There was a li- there was a leaked list of all the members of the BNP. Oh, I don't remember that. It was about—it's probably about seven or eight years ago, and it was—it was kind of big in the media. Yeah. And obviously, being an enemy and being mischief makers, the first thing we did was see <laughs> if we could find any musicians on there. Oh my God. And the name John Windle came up, and the name John Windle from Sheffield what? came up. Was it him? So we rang it, and it wasn't him. <laughs> oh my God. So his phone number there, so we rang it and it wasn't him. But there was a two-hour window where we where we were dreaming up the story. Like, oh, of, this uh, is going to be the best story ever. Little like, man takes singer is, is in the BMP. <laughs> Imagine if you'd have got it wrong and post and not posted that. Sorry, I'm I'm in the modern world and written that and published that. Like what? The lawyers wouldn't have been happy, would no, they? No, I don't. You could have got into a lot of trouble for that. Who else? Was there anyone else in that scene that you you, you liked so, or didn't like or was kind of around at the time that you, you feel like we need to name check? I think of Sheffield's kind of archetypal bands. You think of Pulp, you think of the Long Pigs, you think of Richard Hawley. But I don't think it ever really had a scene that, that the wider kind of public had looked at in the same way they look at Manchester and Liverpool and, and mm. London at times. But what happened around that time was you had the Arctic Monkeys kind of lead scene, so the people in polo shirts with the guitars mm-hmm. kind of strung up high, you all kind of basically sounded quite similar. <laughs> but there was an underbelly to the, the city scene as well, so you had bands like the Long Blondes, uh, and kind of lots Very of kind of band. We DIY. We need to talk about them in a different, a different I, th- I think they're, they're, they're a future podcast, Sarah. I think they're, they're one that we'll explore kind of in, in more detail. But there was a whole kind of scene behind them. There was club nights called things like Razor Stiletto. Oh, yeah, kind of I used to go to that. More kind of fashionista <laughs> kind of led, charity shop chic, more kind of the university kind of led side of things than maybe the Arctic Monkeys kind of led bit scene. More gla- well, also because it was a bit of a different, um, a different kind of thing, wasn't it? Because it was, you know, very female fronted. So whereas the laddie bands that we talked about in the last episode, you know, I, I still think Arctic Monkeys at the very beginning were quite a lad band, and the ones the the bands that we've just, you know, talked about were definitely laddie bands. You know, you, you said yourself they've got lyrics that probably aren't great for women <laughs> and then yeah. all of a sudden the long blondes come and kind of it's a bit more power to the women and bloody hell these are good so i, th- I think i think what we're saying here there's, there's there's a lot of fertile ground in the sheffield scene that perhaps we're going to return to in in future podcasts you know the arctic monkeys were very much kind of excuse the pun the tip of the iceberg when it came to kind of music of that period so now it's probably a good time to listen to the rest of the, the clips that we've got. We we listened to a few in the last episode, um, which were which were really great and really insightful. Um, but we've got a few more here. So do you want to tell us a bit more about where where we're going to go? This is, by the way, everyone. If you if you haven't listened to the last one, this is 
the first recording of the first ever enemy interview with the Arctic Monkeys that Rick did um, when he was a l- young little whippersnapper. Um, it was recorded on a tape cassette, so the sound quality isn't that great. Um, it was from probably like, a, I think your words were 10, 10 quid dictaphone from Argos <laughs> at the time. So it's not quite um, it's not quite as good quality as, as us speaking now, so don't don't uh, don't blame us for that. But yeah, tell, tell us a bit more about what, what they're going to be talking about. So I guess leading off what we were talking about in terms of the Yorkshire scene, um, this is about their kind of thoughts on being part of the Yorkshire scene or perhaps not feeling kind of part of it at all. So here's kind of Alex and Matt's thoughts on that. Did you like the Crimson of the Cows too? I don't like that. What do you like about Kay, Matt? I don't know, I just think he's an amazing dude. It's not like I think it's cool not to like him. Even if it's the same scene, I always think that's a bit of a This is the quote that Matt didn't like going to the feature, wasn't it? About being Ricky Wilson being annoying. Yeah. At least this is proof he actually said it. Proof he said it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's going to hate you even more now. I mean, do you care? No, I mean, no. I'm long, long I mean, past caring. You're long past caring now. Cool. Well, the next bit, um, we're, we're talking, while well, you were talking about the prospect of success and fame. And I like this, and I think you really like this as well, because in the interview, you asked them what it would feel like to headline Glastonbury. And they did a couple of years later. How did that feel when that actually happened? Well, this is the thing. My, my main memory, bef- you know, when I when I dug this tape out and put it in the, the dictaphone and, and kind of worried, thinking, God, how bad must this interview have been? You know, given I was 19, didn't know what I was doing, didn't even turn up with batteries. This was the one bit of the interview I listened to and thought, maybe the 19-year-old me did have his head screwed on to some degree because it's quite prophetic that you t- I talked to them about, you know, comparing walking out the boardwalk to walking out at Glastonbury and, and, and you know this was before they'd even signed a record deal and it's not something that you'd ask every band that to is it no because it'd be ridiculous but there was something about this band that they looked like they were on that um, that trajectory and we do go a little bit more into kind of the you know how they feel about the prospects of success and fame and, yeah. and, and whether whether that would mess with their minds a little bit so um, so yeah here's, here's Alex and Matt talking about that uh, how confident are you in, in your music how big this this could go Oh, I don't know, again, I don't want to... You don't, you don't even want to think about it? No, no, that's like... Can you see that? It's like, it's violent. It's like... It's like... It's like... It's like... It's like... Well, I mean, surely that I've seen until the MP Doherty's out. There's a way he's been trying to the press and... Mates of, you know, getting fights with mates of his and... Mates of his selling stories. I mean, there's a prospect of fame. Is it scary in any way? Or do... Like, it's like big and stuff. It's, that's all it is. It's just like a, like a size thing. I mean, but the fact that 
in a way, quite become successful in my mind already because of the kind of reactions that we we had and stuff. And people was like looking like so passionate about everything, like what we're doing and that. And when the people singing and things like that, would you say walking out of Glastonbury in front of hundred thousand would give you the same? Would it be, would it be the same feeling as walking out of a pack board walk? Or? Yeah, I think you know it's like. Amazing, and and actually, we were just talking now um, when that was playing, and you were actually at that Glastonbury site, weren't you? So, what was what was that like? Um, so, I can still remember the enemy review for that. Um, enemy said it was an opportunity missed, which I completely disagreed with. I think for a band that had that had only signed a record deal two years earlier to have rocketed to headlining Glastonbury um, I, th- I think they absolutely smashed it to be honest you know it's rare that a band will headline a festival with with only one I think maybe two kind of kind of two albums worth of material and, to and, go on and did they manage to because they're it they were really good in a small venue did they manage to um, encapsulate that same vibe at, at somewhere as big as Glastonbury I mean I think it's taken them it took them time to evolve into being a stadium band I don't think any band can go from playing you know, academies and 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 you know that and the Apollos of this world, the kind of two thousand Brixton Academy kind of level venues, to going straight to kind of the arenas and and really feel like they're that they're at home there. And you know, you go and see Arctic Monkeys now, and they are the consummate arena band because it's taken them kind of year and it's taken them years to get to that point. But I think this for me was the point where you listen to these songs and thought, no, th- this this really has got kind of mass stadium appeal and they, and it's not just the songs it's can they can they deliver on that kind of biggest stage i remember um interviewing dizzy rascal actually after this because he came on um, um during the set and did a, a guest spot with them on their track temptation greets you like your naughty friend bit of a mouthful of a title um, <laughs> and i was lo- lucky enough after the gig to interview dizzy about what it was like to go on and and you know appear during the headlining set and I, i'll always remember the quote where he said it was like landing on the moon it's one of those oh. things that not many people have done, um, and and it's one of those kind of mind blowing moments that you walk out in kind of in front of a uh, hundred uh, thousand people. And I think it's interesting as well. We were discussing this about you know they had they mentioned they had rap influences, and he was clearly one of those influences and someone that they were a real kind of fan of, I guess. Mm. Yeah, because we did mention that on the last the last uh, episode. We they, they there's lots of influences that you would assume that they had been influenced by. Sorry, a lot of bands that you'd assume they've been influenced by, but rap was part of that. And then I guess the the final uh, bit of the interview uh, audio that we're going to be playing in in this podcast is around their demos, quite fitting given this is demo tapes and it's all about the demo tapes so I kind of got Alex uh, and Matt to go into a bit more detail on on some of the demos that they'd just recorded some of the tracks that went then went on to become some of their biggest hits so things like Fake Tales of San Francisco but you look good on the dance floor when the sun goes down a certain romance and I guess it's just really interesting to hear um, you know, a that the kind of what inspired them to, to 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 write those songs, and then now to listen back to that in the context of what those songs became. So, yeah, for the final time, here's here's Alex and Matt. Fake tales written in reflection of like seeing bands and and hearing people's songs. And I don't know, it's a bit angry. Isn't it? There's like a lot of people in the band at the moment. Like that, you know, it seems like a lot of and like, you know, so other people have seen, I also think that we've seen, like, maybe some of these in the same band. There's probably people, like, in that area have done gigs with bands that we're actually talking about or whatever. Yeah. Just go through. When we've met and we've been playing about, I worked in a bar, and saw a lot of bands that played. 
in a bit a, a bit about <laughs> a band that I saw um, at a festival called Snowbombing a couple of years ago. I know you probably didn't want me to know, to mention this, but um, oh god, here we yeah, go. Yeah, here we go. So I saw the Antarctic Monkeys. <laughs> I don't know if any of, of the listeners have heard these, but it's not something that I actively went to go and see. But they were there, and they were in one of the best. Um, I don't know if anyone's been to Snowbombing. I know what knows what it's about. There's a venue called the Fun House. So Pat Sharp is one of the kind of main, um, main, I guess, personalities at Snowbombing. It's become a bit of a funny, funny thing um, when you go. There's like Mr. Motivator on the mountain. Pat Sharp has the Fun House. And I'm shaking my head. For he's the shaking his head. He's shaking his head. But you I mean you have to go and experience it because it's one of the most fun weeks I've ever had in my life. No thanks. So, um, so you go into the Fun House and it's just a gig venue basically, and they sell Jaeger bombs, and you know I love Jaeger bombs. So. Snore. <laughs> so anyway, the Antarctic Monkeys were playing, and um, they—they're a cover band of the Arctic Monkeys, and they—they yeah. quite obviously um, I love the name, but they—they they kind of encapsulate what Arctic Monkeys were at the beginning of their career. So, so when you go to those kind of small raucous venues, they—they they, you should see the the people at an Antarctic Monkeys gig. It's like being back. It's like being rewound back to back to those early days of uh, Arctic Monkeys gigs. I'm getting mixed up now with the names, but. Um, they were so good that we actually, me and Pip, um, who I went to snowboarding with, we went to see them again in London. And it was like, it's like they've almost got a fan base of their own that really reminds me of the fan base that the Arctic Monkeys had when they were when they were starting out. 
it's quite bonkers and bizarre actually and i think if you haven't gone and seen them you, you probably should just to experience it right so i'm going to say i'm not and this is going to say you're not going to this is very hypocritical. you hate cover bands <laughs> this is very hypocr- yeah this um, this is very hypocritical because this is a nostalgic podcast but th- cover bands that are antarctic monkeys is shit nostalgia <laughs> you, no i disagree i completely disagree it it's it, it's it's almost like going back to their the sweaty little crappy gig venues that you don't get to go to anymore because those bands that were around at the time you went to them don't exist so just going back and it's not about the music it's about the experience so you know we'll agree to disagree on this one but anyway i'll never be a plus one for one of those gigs i don't need you to be i've got a mate that can go to me with with, for things like that thank you very much but anyway yeah i mean i I digress again I, i like the antarctic monkeys but you know, whatever, Rick doesn't. But I guess how we should close this, because we do need to come to an end, sadly, is, is you know, are, are we still fans? So I have quite a complex answer to this, because I do think it's quite a, a complex question for me, in the sense that, you know, yes, I've listened to all their albums that have come out since, I've probably been to most of the tours, but it's still quite an odd feeling for me to look up and, and see that band and, and know that was someone that, you know, in their early days, I did spend a bit of time with that picked me up in the tour bus and took me to a gig. The little violins are going to come out here. Mm. I, 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 I guess I'm playing in, in one a, right now. You in can't in, see in it, a though. second, you know, and you do think if I hadn't unpaused that game of FIFA, you know, would I be um, watching that gig from the side of the stage rather than, than down here? But yes, I mean, you cannot deny musically just kind of. Um, you know, just how kind of great and kind of um, era-defining they are. And I think the interesting thing about Arctic Monkeys, when you compare them with maybe an Oasis, um, maybe they're a little bit close to Blur in this sense, is just how the sound has evolved. You know, how their debut album didn't sound exactly like the second album, and then certainly around Humbug, they evolved into kind of a kind of stoner grunge rock sound that then shed a load of fans. Then they kind of brought it back with Suck It and See that was more, kind of more chart palatable, I guess, or kind of more mass palatable. And then AM, which kind of reinvented them um, again, with some of those kind of hip hop influences that they talked about from kind of the very, the very early days, and then yeah, that's where it really, that's where I really got it for me. Is um, AM was released when I was just, uh, I just came back from being away for a, for a year. I went to live in Melbourne for a year, um, had a bit of a break from London um, after a bit having been here for for a lot of years. For me, that was a really defining moment in my life, and I think in their career. And I remember. Um, I just started a job um, and I was trying to settle back into London and it was coming up to summer so you know everyone was kind of out and about on the streets I was walking across Waterloo Bridge which for me is one of the most inspirational places in London and it always has been because I lived around there when I first moved to London as as an 18 year old I didn't really have many friends and I used to walk across Waterloo Bridge and look at Westminster on one side and look at the city which the landscape's completely kind of changed since since I was there 14 years ago but I was starting to walk up to Waterloo Bridge and put on Are You Mine? And that song, combined with the fact that I love Waterloo Bridge and the view over there, was so powerful and it kind of felt um, like I was in a euphoric state walking Biblical, over that bridge. I mean, it pretty much was. It was just, a, it's a memory that I'll, well, it's, it's something that I'll always remember. And when that song comes on now, I'm, I kind of reflect back over that point in my life and to me it's just a a bit of an emotive thing rather than anything else um also it was they were on the soundtrack to Peaky Blinders at at that time and I absolutely bloody love Peaky Blinders so for me it was just another absolutely incredible thing because I'd got you know Killian Murphy who's one of my favorite people in the world with Peaky Blinders that was an 
epic TV show and then Arctic Monkeys all together in one thing, for me, it just kind of made sense and I loved it. I'm glad you bring up soundtracks because I was trying to think, how am I going to segue into the Submarine soundtrack that Alex Turner did as well? And if It's yeah, one of their lesser-known yeah. records, I think. Well, it's not them, it's just Alex. But I think it's one of his lesser-known works. But you know, tracks like Stuck on the Puzzle, I don't think he's written anything better kind of before or since since that so you know if you haven't heard the submarine soundtrack and you're an arctic monkeys fan do go and check it out i guess the place to end this on i suppose given that we're sat here in uh, you know in september 2018 uh, a few months on from the release of the arctic monkeys latest album tranquility base hotel and casino um bit of a sonic departure you know um from previous albums quite you know alex's i don't like it what i don't like it <laughs> i know sorry do you know what i haven't even got to i think i managed to after about you know it took me about three times to listen to the full album and i just haven't gone back to it see i'm i'm absolutely obsessed with it and i think the two things i like about it are you know a that it's that it's that it is a complete sonic departure and, and that the songs really do kind of reward repeat listens i'm a fan of a band called beach house who are kind of the same mm, you listen yes, i don't like them either you, ha- you have to listen to them about 10 times before it kind of seeps in but second <laughs> i like the fact that they're shedding fans maybe frankly like you like oh, the thanks. whole the whole point of this album i think is is to kind of separate mm, i don't think that's true separate I the wheat from the chaff i think that's your idealistic um, ego talking there one of the best things about seeing the arctics at the o2 a few weeks ago was waiting for them to play some of the new stuff like star treatment and delighting in the fact that fans were nipping to the bar for a drink because they considered that was the bit where you nip to the bar oh, so i'm glad typical. they're so i'm typical. glad they're shedding they're shedding the fair weather fans <laughs> i don't think i'm a fair weather fan but anyway um but yeah let's let's end it there because i think we could we could go on we could go on we could go on but i think that's a really good place to end it um i want to talk about what's coming next time Okay. Yeah. So um, when I was in Berlin a couple of weeks ago, I went out to um, interview Sam Potter um, of Late of the Pier. It was a really good interview. Um, and we're going to base the next episode around the new rave scene and, and looking at what it was actually all about. Um, it's 10 years on. So it's a really good time to kind of reintroduce it. Um, and I think we, you, were, you were saying, Rick, weren't you? You were saying, was it, was it from the sublime to the ridiculous? Or well, was I think it actually we are... good? Was it actually good? We're going from the sublime to the ridiculous. Or are we? Actually, oh. was was there was there better music? You know, you think of new rave now, and we, we won't. You know, we're not going to spoil the next episode too much. But you think of glow sticks, yeah. whistles, and there was a lot of that. Let's you know, be fair. Um, songs with kind of novelty sirens keyboards. on them and that sort of thing. <laughs> but you know, amongst keyboards and- amongst all the novelty, was there actually some great music made? And I think maybe we're going to argue. We are going to argue that. that. We're going to we're going to delve into that. So thanks for listening to Side B of our kind of Arctic Monkeys debut spectacular of the podcast. Um, To make sure you get the next episode as soon as it drops, why not subscribe to Demo Tapes on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. It does really help in in getting, getting the word out there. So yeah, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. See you next week, guys. Bye.